simply put, a community benefits agreement is a contract, a legal contract between a developer or a proponent of a project and community groups. The idea is that these development projects are often tied to some kind of a public subsidy or a tax credit. And so the non-developer signatories to a community benefits agreement are basically attempting to get these developers who are getting public subsidies to actually serve the public and serve the host community. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. Today, we're going to be exploring community benefits agreements as a tool for ensuring equitable community reinvestment. This is your host, Mike Hancocks, and joining me is my co-host, Vernice Miller-Travis. Hey, Vernice, how are you today? I'm good, Mike. Looking forward to this discussion. Our guest today is Veronica Eady, the Vice President and Massachusetts Director of the Conservation Law Foundation. She is a lawyer whose practice has been focused on issues of environmental justice. She is a former chair of US EPA's National Environmental Justice Advisory Council and the principal author of the State of Massachusetts Environmental Justice Policy. Veronica, welcome. Oh, thanks, Bernice. Thanks, Mike. I'm really glad to be here. Veronica, you've been a tireless environmental justice advocate for most of your career. Tell us about the moment you realized this is what your life's work was going to be. Oh, that's a really interesting question. Well, I sort of stumbled into the field of environmental law, not having taken any environmental law classes. And sort of at the end of my law school career, I was applying for jobs and I saw some jobs open at the EPA It was a time when the EPA was still getting money from the Superfund. And so I said, I like the environment. I'm going to apply for this job at the EPA. So lo and behold, I actually got hired there. And I have to say that had I applied a year later, I probably wouldn't have gotten the job because that was around the time when so many, the environmental movement was really growing like gangbusters and curricula were growing so that they had really good environmental courses. But when I was in law school, we didn't have them. But anyway, about a year after working at the EPA and really enjoying my work there, I read an article in Essence magazine about this thing called environmental justice, which they described as a marriage between environmentalism and civil rights. And No sooner than I read this article, and it was about a community in Louisiana in Cancer Alley, I decided that I was going to stay at the EPA for as long as it took to learn every body of law that was enforced and implemented by EPA. And then I would take that knowledge and work on behalf of community groups. So I've been doing that ever since. 
There are so many things we could talk to you about, Veronica, but today we really would like to focus on community benefits agreements as an essential tool for more equitable reinvestment and development. Can you explain for our audience what a community benefits agreement is? Yeah. So simply put, a community benefits agreement is a a contract, a legal contract between a developer or a proponent of a project and community groups. And Generally speaking, the the interests on the community side in a community benefit agreement are wide ranging. It can be community-based organizations, it can be labor unions, faith organizations, or mainstream environmental groups, or any combination of those. But typically, those are the, the types of groups that have an interest in community benefits agreements. And the idea is that these development projects are often tied to some kind of a public subsidy or a tax credit. And so the non-developer signatories to a community benefits agreement are basically attempting to get these developers who are getting public subsidies to actually serve the public and serve the host community. And have you seen them really, really work in terms of equalizing that often level of unequal power? You know, the developer usually has lots of money, lots of contacts, lots of political pull, and the communities have not a lot of any of those things. So how does that become an, an, an equal between those parties? I've seen some community benefits agreements that have been very good, and I have seen some that have not been so good. So on the good end, Vernice, you, I'm sure, and Mike know about back in the 90s, the Staples Center Agreement, which was one of the first agreements that really brought in all of these stakeholder groups of environmentalists, community people, labor, and faith to make sure that the Staples Center limited pollution, whether that was pollution from cars coming through the neighborhood to get to the Staples Center or parking. It endeavored to guarantee first source hiring so that people from the local community were getting jobs and they weren't just temporary construction jobs. They were good permanent jobs. And also to make sure that people who were hired in conjunction with this project were earning a living wage. So that was back in the 90s. And that was a very much heralded community benefits agreement. Over the last 20 years, we've seen them change quite a bit to the extent that in some states, community benefits agreements are mandated by law. And I'll use this as an example here in Massachusetts where I live. Our casino gaming law requires a community benefits agreement with the community. And the fact that these community benefits agreements are now more so embodied in a statute and required, that's really changed what the playing field looks like. So no longer is it community organizations, environmental groups and such coming together and insisting on their power and their place at the table. The dynamic is a little bit different now because you have the state government in Massachusetts, for example, saying you have to do this community benefits agreement. And that really changes. It changes the lead of the agreement. It changes the tenor of the agreement. And it's not to say that there aren't still good things coming out of them, but it really has shaken up the playing field and the balance of power. So then why, Veronica, would you say that community benefits agreements are important tools in the equitable reinvestment or development toolbox? 
they continue to be an important tool because they are still a way for communities to be at the table and formally engage in this conversation, even if it is a conversation mandated by statute. Having said that, however, I've seen community benefits agreements that were mandated by statute that I didn't think ran very well and that I found the balance of power to be a little bit out of whack. And in particular, most recently, I was involved in a community benefits agreement in Bridgeport, Connecticut, that involved the siting of a new power plant site. And this particular one was interesting. My initial involvement was that the city of Bridgeport had impaneled a community advisory committee to work on the siting project and to engage in the conversation with the power plant company. And initially, I presented to the community advisory committee at their invitation. They wanted some tips about community benefits agreements. And one thing about this Connecticut example was that this new natural gas power plant that triggered the community benefits agreement was being constructed next to a coal power plant that had been there for decades. And this was all in the middle of a historic African-American community in Bridgeport, Connecticut. The first thing that I said to the Community Advisory Council is that they should demand a date certain for the retirement of the coal plant. They did that, and that was an outgrowth of the final agreement that was signed. So in some ways, the community benefits agreement was a success. You could debate whether or not that plant would have retired anyway due to market forces. But this process was a process that was by invitation only. So there were a few groups that were invited to be at the table. There were a couple of mainstream environmental groups. My group initially was not at the table, although I was invited to do that presentation. And one of the things that was glaringly wrong with this process is that the power plant developer was dictating the process. They wanted the details of the negotiation to be confidential. And for any other negotiation, that's not unreasonable. That's typical. You want confidential negotiations. The problem was that when this small group that was negotiating the agreement decided, okay, it's time for us to go public. We want the city council to approve this. And we want all of these other groups to sign on to it including a number of community groups and environmental groups that were not at the table. These groups that hadn't been at the table had a week to look at this agreement that they hadn't participated in, and they were really expected to sign on to it. And it naturally raised a lot of problems. And in the end, I think that the community benefits agreement and the process was not successful because there were so many groups that said, you know what, I don't want to have any part of this agreement. So you've shared one example, the Staples Center, of what you thought was a good environmental benefits agreement. And are there others? And we should say for our listening audience who are not basketball fans, the Staples Center is where the Los Angeles Lakers play basketball. That's their home. Are there other examples, Veronica? And is an environmental benefits agreement the same as a community benefits agreement? That's a really interesting question. 
So there have been many of these agreements all over the country. I was working on one in, in New York City. They're just everywhere now. And so to your question about if a community benefits agreement is different from a community environmental benefits agreement, I would say, yes, it may be nuanced in the end, and they may end up being pretty much the same thing. But a community benefits environmental agreement, by its nature, is going to focus on environmental benefits. And a community benefits agreement can be more broad. Having said that, this Connecticut example that I raised, the statute that called for this agreement, and I should also say that this statute made the agreement discretionary. So if the developer decided not to have an agreement or if the city decided not to have an agreement, the statute was okay with that. So Bridgeport, Connecticut, Community Environmental Benefit Agreement, that's the language of the statute. That agreement that they signed actually didn't just have environmental benefits in it. It had a lot of other stuff in it. It did have a job component to it. And it did have a pool of money for a discretionary pool for the community to use for things like health assessments and things like that. So just because it has the term environmental in it doesn't mean that it's limited to environmental issues But it can be. It just kind of depends on who's at the table and what they're willing to agree to. So maybe we can just shift in a little bit different direction for a second. If I'm a member of a community group and I'm concerned about a development project, and I think that there should be a community benefits agreement in place, where do I get started? How do I get that to happen? And what are kind of the essential elements of making that happen? Well, I would say the first thing I would do is to see what kind of promises have been made to this developer. As I said, you know, normally there is some sort of a subsidy or a tax credit or some sort of an element like that. I would look to see if there is something like that, that my group or my community could hang their hat on. And by that, I mean this subsidy, this finance piece of it sort of makes it a kind of a super contract. So it's not just a contract where I will take you to court because you said that you were going to provide X number of jobs and you didn't like a normal contract dispute. It sort of heightens it and you're bringing in the municipality or the state or whoever it is that's offering this tax credit so that not only is it enforceable as a one-on-one contract or however many parties are engaged, it makes it so that the municipality or whatever the governmental entity is can also enforce it. And that gives the community groups some power because they can go to their city council, they can go to their mayor, they can go to their governor and insist on the contract being enforced, otherwise the subsidies being withdrawn. This opens up a lot of tools for communities. So not only going to your legislators, but you can go to the media and you have a really good media story. It really makes it a much better contract when you're able to have that financial component, that financial piece to it. 
The next thing I would do is, besides doing this little bit of research, then there's a lot of community organizing that needs to go on. Who is at stake here? Who has an interest? Is it the public school down the street? Is it the labor unions? Is it my local neighborhood church? And through community organizing, I would bring all of these groups in and give them an opportunity as well to partner up and engage in approaching this developer. So if I'm a community member and I think that all those conditions exist or I'm a, I can run a community-based organization, is there someplace I can go to learn more or someplace I can go to get, is there somebody who will counsel me and advise me on this? Well, there's a lot of information on the internet now that we're in the digital age. I found on the internet digests of probably not a comprehensive list of all of the community benefits that exist, but certainly uh, probably a vast majority of them. So you can go online, you can find what's out there, you can look at other agreements, you can outreach or connect with other communities that have done community benefits agreement. And that's particularly, that's where a mandated environmental community benefits agreement might be helpful. Because I know that, that in Massachusetts, we're constructing a casino in Everett, Massachusetts. And I know that there's a gaming law that requires a community benefits agreement. So I can go to that community and I can learn lessons from them. So there are lots of ways now that there weren't 20 years ago that community groups can connect and learn lessons from each other. And I think that there are a number of people within the realm who are experts and can be tapped. So when I was tapped to talk to folks in Bridgeport, Connecticut, there was another environmental justice activist there, Dr. Mark Mitchell, who had experience with community benefits agreements, and he presented as well. So there are so-called, I don't know if I would consider myself an expert, but uh, I've done a couple of these, and there are experts out there that people can readily tap into, and those people are really just want to help. And so tell us a little bit about the Conservation Law Foundation and the work that you do there. Sure. So Conservation Law Foundation is a member-supported mainstream environmental group, and we are focused regionally on New England. So throughout New England, we have five offices headquartered here in Boston, and we work in four primary areas, clean water. We do a lot of oceans work. We do clean energy and climate change work, and we do environmental justice work. And when we're in a political climate, as we are now, when Congress is stalemated, sometimes and oftentimes you can function more effectively by working within your region. And that's what we do. And we use the law. We use science. We have scientists on staff, economists, planners, health researchers. And we use all of these things in addition to the market to develop creative approaches to addressing pollution in New England. Great. If our audience wanted to learn more about the Conservation Law Foundation or get in touch with you, how would they do that? Well, we have a website at www.clf.org. And they can email me at V-E-A-D-Y 
at clf.org. I would be happy to talk to anyone and give them more information about CLF or get them engaged in our work. That would be wonderful. So our last three questions, Veronica, are what we call lightning round questions. So we're going to ask you the questions quickly, and we want you to say the first thing that pops into your head in answer to the questions. Okay, I'm afraid of this. So the first one is, if you you could implement one change or pick one leverage point that would lead to smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities, what would it be? Okay, one leverage point. I would say that... We need to have uh, zoning reform that addresses climate change, climate adaptation, and addresses gentrification and displacement. And for the average listener, what one action could they take to help build a more equitable and sustainable future? They can engage in their local government and their community-based organizations There are all kinds of community-based organizations, whether it's your local NAACP chapter or your community health center. There are all kinds of ways to engage in your community. And through these community-based organizations, they can engage in the political spectrum around political platforms that support their communities and their particular interests. So I would say the other thing is vote, call your legislators, be engaged. Excellent. What does the New England region look like 30 years from now? 30 years from now, we have waterfronts where the infrastructure, all of the infrastructure, whether it's electricity, piping, whatever it is, and buildings are energy efficient and they are constructed in a way that addresses climate change and sea level rise. And we would have a vibrant economy with a vibrant here in New England uh, and in Massachusetts, we have a big fishing industry, a, a vibrant fishing industries while, while still protecting our, our ocean resources and our community resources. And I think that the rest of our success here in in New England and across the country is engaging people and thinking about how our actions that we take every day impact the environment for the people who live in it. And that's a place I'd like to live in. Thank you, Veronica, so very much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you for inviting me. This is fun. And we want to thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, the Local Government Commission, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash infinite earth radio and Twitter by following at infinite earth radio.